You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. I'm going to do my best to remember to slow down tonight. Uh, so if you have your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be going quite a few places tonight. I'm going to try not to overload you, but the beauty of this is that it will be on the podcast and you can always come back and listen to this video again. So I want to encourage you to do that. Come back and listen to this video again or go back and get it on the podcast, whichever you prefer. Uh, but we're going to go a few places tonight. And um, I was tempted to pull back the reins a little bit, but it's Bible study night. So let's have fun. Here we go. Uh, Ephesians chapter five. Now we're going to pick up at verse 25. But before we do, let's talk just a little bit, give you some backdrop, some foundation of how we got here. I was actually um, going to share exclusively about the high priest. Um, what happened was I was going over some notes and uh, one of the things I was reading in Romans and one of the things the Lord impressed on me was uh, I just heard a phrase and I just, really I heard a phrase. It was his righteousness, his strength, his righteousness, his strength. And then I heard it say his righteousness, my strength. And so I just, excuse me, I was just, you know, I had this moment where I was just really kind of meditating on that. His righteousness, his strength, his righteousness, my strength. And I'm going to come to that in just a moment. But one thing we did not do yet, we did not pray. So I'm going to pray real quick. Then we're going to get started. So I apologize. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, again, I thank you tonight for the ability to do this. Lord, I thank you that there is no distance in the anointing. So tonight, as we open the word to see you, Jesus, I ask that no one would get what I prepared. But Father, we would all get exactly what you would have for us, myself included. And Lord, I thank you that no one came to this, no one's listening to this, to see me or hear me. We've all come to receive from you. And your promise to us is that as we sit at your feet and hear your word, you will transform us. You will take care of the rest. So tonight, Lord, we rest at your feet and we listen and we receive your word. And Father, I thank you that as before this is even finished, before this message ends, that we will walk into a battlefield only to collect the spoils of the victories that you won for us. So we thank you that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. You have already won the battle for us. We rest and let you win. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get to it. So anyways, like I was saying, uh, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, but what I was saying was, you know, I was, I, I heard the Holy Spirit, or I just, you know, I heard it in, my, in me. I heard, you know, His righteousness, His strength. And I've been reading verses about righteousness that really, really give the implication that God's righteousness is His strength. Again, his righteousness is his strength. And so I had this moment where I was just kind of meditating on that and just kind of letting that, you know, marinate on me. And uh, knowing what I was going to share tonight for the last week or two, uh, I had some time to really kind of study it and just think about it, really meditate on certain verses. And I've just been putting it in front of me, especially today at work. You know, I just put it in front of me um, and I was just, you know, really kind of meditating. Now we're going to come to Romans chapter one, verse 16 in just a moment. But before we do, uh, when it comes to strength, one of the images that I could see in my head so clear and I almost got a picture to put on here, like in the Zoom to share my screen with you. I almost did that, but I didn't. Uh, but one of the, the images that, that came to mind was the high priest. Now, when you look at the high priest, I'm going to show you in Exodus in just a moment. But when you look at the high priest, keep in mind the job of the high priest, and not just the high priest, the priest in general, the job of the priest was to minister to God. Now, in the way that they minister to God, and God says that himself, I'm going to show you that in just a few moments. But in Exodus chapter 28, God says this, tell the priest that they are to wear these clothes like this. They're wear um, certain garments and they're to do certain things. And everything that the priest does, they minister to me. Now, keep in mind, the priest, the priest don't actually go to God and say anything to God. Now, I'm not talking about the high priest now. I'm talking about the priest. When it comes to the high priest, the high priest is the one that goes into the presence of God once a year. And when he goes to God that one time a year, he represents all of us. But at the same time, the priest, they as a whole, high priest included, they represent God to the people. Now, what happens is this, all the priests, they represent God to the people in a sense of this. They tell the people what God is saying. They expound the scripture the way God wants them to. They share what they hear from God 
to the people. Now, I know you're thinking, well, that's like a prophet. Not necessarily. The prophet comes from God. He goes to the people. He represents God to the people. But the priests, in a lot of ways, they represent the people to God. Now, I know I said it backwards in just a second, but let me explain. The priests, they are actually talking to the people. They don't really talk to God that much. They talk to the people mostly. And because they talk mostly to the people, the people's perception of the priest is that the priests represent God. Now, let me say this. What I do, you know, as a pastor, share it on Facebook, share it in church. Let me say this. That's a priestly ministry because what I'm doing is the same thing as the priest do. I'm taking God's word. I'm expounding it concerning Jesus and I'm bringing it to the people. Um, the, the, the time spent, the, the minutes, the hours, the days spent going through God's word, raking through it, right? Raking through God's word to find the nuggets of gold, to find the treasure so I can share with other people. All of that is a priestly ministry. Now, knowing that, knowing that it's a priestly ministry, what happens is this. People see me or they see the preacher, so does whoever you're listening to, and that person represents God because what they're hearing from him is what God has shared with that person. But knowing that, God said this, the priests don't actually represent God to the people. God says this, the priests represent the people to him. And in that way, the priests minister to God. Now, I hope I didn't confuse anyone, but when I saw that phrase, God said, the priest ministered to me. I've known that for years. I've seen it. I've highlighted it in most of the Bibles I have. But when I saw that phrase, the priest ministered to me, it spoke volumes to me, like really for the first time. Because what I saw was this. God was saying, the priest represent the perfection of the people that the people don't have. The priest, when God looks at the priest, God sees perfection. Now, again, we are not perfect. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that. We're not perfect. None of us are. None of us are perfect. But when God looks at the priest and he sees the way that they are dressed, God says the priest represent perfection. And because they represent perfection, they are ministering to me. Crazy, right? Now, again, because they represent perfection, they're ministering to God. Now, how do they minister to God? Because when God looks at you uh, uh, without your priest, when God looks at you, God sees your sin. God sees all the things that you're doing wrong. God sees all the things that you've done bad, all the things you you did right, but you did it for the wrong reasons. God sees you at your core. He sees you. But when your high priest or your priest in general steps in your place, he sees, wait a second, he doesn't see your 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 idiosyncrasies. He doesn't see your failures. He sees the perfection of your priest. And when he sees the perfection of your priest, he says, I'm going to bless you anyways. Translation, I'm going to be gracious to you. You don't deserve it, but your priest does. So because your priest is perfect, I'm going to bless you. Now, let me say this. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus has made all of us kings and priests. In other words, anyone who believes in Jesus, you're not just a king, but you're also a priest. You have the anointing of a king and the anointing of a priest. Now, we've talked about that before. I won't get into that. You want more on that? Go to the podcast and listen to the messages that we've done on that. But again, you're not just, you don't just have the anointing of a king. You have the anointing of a priest. And the anointing of a priest means this, the same, the same blessing or the same representation that a priest would have, you have. So when you're at work, keep in mind, you are a priest. You're representing God to those people. When you're at work, uh, when you're at home, you are the priest. I believe that the priest in a lot of ways represents the husband. Like Christ is the husband. He represents the husband. He comes representing the husband. He's like the, uh, the messenger that goes before the bride, goes before the groom, right? Uh, going to the bride, which is the church, right? So in that way, the priest is like the, uh, the messenger or representing the, the groom. Um, in the same way, um, the husband is the head of the house. I believe that the husband is the high priest of the house. So as the husband and the father of my house, that makes me the high priest of my home. And as your high priest is, so go the rest of the house. So goes the rest of the house. So go the rest of the people. All right. Now, again, I hope I'm not losing anybody. But my point in saying that is this. God says that the priest minister to him. And one more time, because the perfection of the priest, all right, tells God that I don't have to judge my people. I can be gracious to my people. I can give to my people, even though they don't deserve it. I can give to my people. I can bless them. I can protect them. I can favor them over everybody else because their priest is perfect. And in that way, God says, because you come to me and you are able to say, no, 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 no judgment, only grace. God says you are ministering to me. Now, I love that. That just, honestly, that I love that. So now let's look at this. When it comes to a priestly ministry, what I want you to understand is this. When it comes to a priestly ministry, the priestly ministry or the, the ministry of the priest never condemns. They never condemn. The ministry of the priest only affirms what the groom says. 
in Song of Solomon, the groom looks at her. Solomon looks at the woman. And every time she says something bad about herself, Solomon only says something good about her. So in the same way that Solomon is only saying something good, the same way, all right, the job of the priest is to never bring anything bad, but to only bring something good because the groom only has good things to say. So the priest should only have good things to say. I find it crazy to me when, when pastors and preachers have something negative to say to the church. If the groom isn't saying something negative, then how can you have something negative to say to the people in the church? Now, don't take my word for it. You say, Matthew, that's, that's a little bit of a reach. You know, what about judgment? What about condemnation? What about fire and brimstone? I heard a celebrity the other, the other day, he made a comment. He was like, you know, we need to get, churches need to get back to preaching the fire and brimstone, the judgment. And I thought, wow, you have no idea what the gospel is. So let's look at this. In Ephesians chapter five, pick up at verse 25, Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, now watch this, watch this. In the church, there's some people who are saying it's all grace, we're great. But then there's some people who are saying, we need to preach more law. You need to preach more law. You need to tell the church what they're doing wrong so that they can get it right. Notice, how does Jesus cleanse his church? How does he cleanse his bride? He does it with his words. Now, right here, this, this truth is being um, revealed or unveiled through the analogy of a husband and a wife. So Paul's talking to husbands, and he's saying, husbands, the same way Jesus cleanses his church, when the church does something bad, he cleanses her. The same way Jesus does it, you do it to your wife. Now, right here, again, how does Jesus do it? Whatever his, his wife is doing that's wrong, he cleanses her with his words. Now, he doesn't give her bad words. He gives her positive words. Now, how do we know that? Look at verse 26 one more time. That he might sanctify and clean her, cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Right here, he's not saying, hey, he bashes her. He condemns her every time she does something wrong. He finds fault with her. He didn't say that at all. What he's saying is every time something is wrong in her, he uses his words to clean her and perfect her and bring her back to the place where she should have been from the beginning. His job is not to beat her into submission. His job is to literally love her and use his words to perfect her. Now, when I was meditating on this, I want you to look at this in Exodus chapter 28. I told you we're going to be jumping around a little bit. I apologize. But look at this. In Exodus chapter 28, let's look at the high priest garments real quick. Let's look at the high priest garments. In Exodus 28, let's pick up at verse 11. We're going to look at the high priest. Now, again, when the high priest goes into the presence of God, right, he represents the people to God. God doesn't look at the, the sins of the people. He looks at the high priest. If the high priest is perfect, God judges the whole nation perfect. Translation, if the high priest is perfect, God can be gracious to the whole nation. But if the high priest sins, then God has to judge the whole nation because the high priest represents the people to God. Now, right here, one of the garments that the high priest has to wear, there's a breastplate on the front. But what we're going to look at is the shoulder pads that go on the high priest's garments. Look at this in verse 11. God says, with the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. Now, right here, God is saying right here on one side, I want you to have gold. And then I want you to take, um, I want you to take a stone and I want you to put it into the gold on the one side of the shoulder and on the other shoulder, do the same thing. Put gold and then literally put a stone and then put it into the, the, the gold. So you've got a stone and it's put inside the gold. Then he says this, I want you to get an engraver, all right? And I want you to engrave the names of the sons of Israel. Now watch this in verse, uh, where are we at? Verse 12. He says, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron, no, one more time. Notice, memorial stones, not for God, but for the sons of Israel. Now keep in mind, what we see here is a type and shadow of what is what is in Christ. Everything on the outside of the high priest, what we're seeing is actually telling us what's on the inside. Okay. Now I can go into that, but I want to stay on track because I, I want to be conscious of the time. I want to go too long. When you look right here, what he says is it's a memorial to the nation of Israel, to the sons of Israel. In other words, when they see this, this is not for me. He's saying this is for them. Okay. This on the outside, on the shoulders is not for God. It's actually for all of us. All right. Now watch this. 
He says in verse 12, you shall put the stone, the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. Then he says in verse 13, you shall also make settings of gold and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords, fasten them to the braided, fasten the braided chains to the settings. And he goes on to talk about the breastplate. Now, the reason why I'm pointing this out to you is this. There are some things that God says, I want you to make these and these are a memorial to me. When I see this, I will remember this. When I see that, I will remember that. But when it comes to this one right here, God says, when I see this, keep in mind, what he's going to put on his shoulders is not for me. It's for you, a memorial for you. Now, when you see memorial, what he's saying is, I want you to remember something. Now, what does he want them to remember? What does he want all of us to remember? When you look at his shoulders, I want you to see your name there, meaning he carries you on his shoulders and he brings you into the presence of God on his shoulders. Now, when you look in the Bible, shoulders always speak of strength. They always speak of strength. When Jesus told the parable of the, of the good shepherd, when he told the parable of the good shepherd, he said this, when the shepherd finds the sheep, he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he carries the sheep home meaning not in the strength of the sheep. He doesn't force the lost sheep to walk home, to learn his lesson. He puts the sheep on his shoulders and he brings the sheep home, rejoicing the whole way home, telling the sheep, I'm glad I found you. And I'm so glad I mean, we were incomplete without you. I'm so glad I found you. And what is he saying? He's literally saying, I want you to know in my strength, I will always bring you back. In my strength, I will always provide for you. In my strength, I will always do this for you. I'll always do that. It's never your strength. It's always the strength of the shepherd. It's never your strength, how strong you are, how smart you are, how manipulative you can be. I mean, it's, it's, it's never how good you plan or how, how great you think you are. It's always going to be his strength. Now, engraved means it, it can never be taken away. If God said, I want you to write on the stones, that means it could be blotted out. It can be wiped off. But God is saying, I want this to be engraved, meaning engraved means it can never be removed. So because it's engraved, God is saying, look, every time you look from now until forever, even one day when we are in heaven and Jesus comes back, know this, we are not in heaven because of something we did. We are in heaven because of what Jesus did. It's not because of how good you were, how bad you were. It's because of what Jesus did for us. It's not our strength. It's his strength. I'm telling you, in life, we don't win because of how smart we are, how cunning we are. We win because Jesus is strong enough to make us win. I mean, he is good enough to push us across the finish line. So again, engraved on stone, I mean, I know it's just simple words like, you know, Matthew, don't make a big deal out of all this, but no, I'm telling you, engraved literally means now and forevermore. And on his shoulder speaks of his strength. He carries us in his strength. Now look at this, when it comes to his strength, and again, I know we're jumping around a lot, but when it comes to his strength, look at this in Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. This is a well-known verse in the church. The apostle Paul is gonna say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter one, verse 16. Paul says this, and we're on the topic of strength, right? Strength. Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, look at this in 16 one more time. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, what is the gospel? We talked about that about... Um, what was it? Not last Sunday, but the Sunday before that. We talked about this. We were actually talking about uh, what it means. No, I think it was last Sunday. I'm sorry. It was last Sunday. It was a week ago. We were talking about the gospel. And in the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with the fact that the, the church in Galatia, they've literally let go of the gospel of grace. They've let go of the gospel, which is the grace of God. And they've pursued something other than the gospel. And literally what they did was they pursued the law. They pursued the Ten Commandments again. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Who has bewitched you? And I'll go back and listen to that. That's on the podcast. But in that message, what we were saying was this. Anything other than grace is not the gospel. Grace is the gospel, according to Paul's own words. Grace is the gospel. And because grace is the gospel, to preach anything other than grace is not to preach the gospel. It's to preach something else. And to, to, to have put anyone under under anything that's not the gospel is to bewitch them. It's to use a curse, witchcraft, literally. That's what Paul went on to say. So anything outside of grace is witchcraft. Stay in grace. Be safe. Stay in grace. 
But he says all that. He comes to this point when you understand grace is the gospel. Right here, when Paul says gospel, he's not talking about the law. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God manifested to men. In fact, Peter said it like this. All the prophets of old, all the prophets, all the patriarchs, all the great and men and women of God, they were looking ahead to our time, the day that the Holy Spirit spoke to them about the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. They were looking for that time, that time that you and I are in right now, where the grace of God would be made manifest. And I'm going to show you more about that in a moment. But again, they were looking to the time where grace would be a reality because they all lived in a time where grace was not the reality. The law was the, was the reality. When David sinned with Bathsheba, it cost him his life. I'm sorry, it cost him the life of his son, his, his child. When David did these things, it cost him. And David looked ahead to a day where you and I exist. And David said, God, I wish I could have been in that time because Matthew Edwards and all those people in 2020, they are blessed and don't even realize how blessed they are. I'll show you that in just a few moments. But again, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed of the grace of God. Why? For it is the, and I I pointed this out before, but keep in mind, it is the, now T-H-E. T-H-E literally is, I mean, it's the definite article. In the English, it's the definite article, one and only. T-H-E, the. Let's say, for example, I say, hey, can you hand me um, a book on my shelf? I know over my shoulder, you know, I have my bookshelf. If I say, can you hand me a book on the shelf? That means grab any book on the shelf. But let's say I say, hey, can you grab me the book on the shelf? Well, there's a lot of books on the shelf. Your next question is not going to be, you know, how soon or how Your next question is going to be, which book on the shelf? Because I'm saying the book, I'm implying that there's only one book on the shelf that I want. Now, I know that's kind of like a common sense thing. You're thinking, Matthew, you know, that's not deep. Okay, we get the point. But my point in saying that is this. We apply that to every other thing in the English language. Yet right here, right here, I know the, the New Testament was written in Greek. But even in the Greek, that word, that T-H-E, that definite article, it, it is it. it. I'm sorry, I can't get it out. It exists right here. So my point in saying that is this, when you see this, keep in mind, he's not saying that the gospel of Christ, the grace of God is a power of God, one of God's powers to save you. He's saying it is the power of God, the one and only power. God has chosen to intentionally wrap up the fullness and the weight of all his power to save us and put it into the message of his grace for all of us, the grace of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And notice what he says, It is the power of God to salvation. That word salvation to healing, to wholeness, to prosperity, to whatever you need from God, etc. Protection. It is the power of God for all of those things. And notice, for everyone who does good things, to everyone who deserves it. No, it's to everyone who believes. God's power is not for people who do. It's for people who believe. And watch this. For the Jew first, also for the Greek, verse 17. For or because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Not from faith to works, but from faith to faith. The moment you receive Jesus, it's not, okay, I believe Jesus, now do a bunch of good things. No, 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 no. God's power is wrapped up in the good news of Jesus Christ. God's power is wrapped up in his grace. And why? Because God's power is wrapped up in his grace. It's not from what you believed that moment you said, yes, Jesus, to now doing good things. No, no, no. God's power is wrapped up in believing and believing more and believing more and finding out more things to believe in Christ. All within the grace of God. Now, again, I hope I didn't confuse you if I did go back and listen to that. But I mean, that's my point. It's so simple that Satan wants to literally pervert the gospel by by making it complex, adding steps. You know, I tell I tell our church all the time, if you're listening to a preacher and he gives you steps, turn him off. I'm serious. Run. Run as fast as you can. Paul said himself, I pray that you would not be deceived as Eve was deceived. And uh, gosh, I can't remember how he words it, but he uses the phrase, I pray that you would stay away from um, the enemy. He pretty much says this. Satan wants to deceive you by making something simple, complex, by making the message of Jesus complex. But God wants to keep it simple for you. I'm telling you what's so simple right here is this. God isn't saying do more. He's saying believe more of God's grace because my power is wrapped up in my grace. Now I say this, why is his power wrapped up in his grace? If you want to see his power, how do we see it? Verse 17, because in it, in what? In the gospel of grace, 
in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now that tells me one thing. That tells me this. When I'm hearing the gospel, when I'm hearing grace, the righteousness of God is being revealed. How right I am with God is being revealed. Not the righteousness of Matthew. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Not the righteousness of Matthew. Not even your righteousness. What's being revealed is the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? It means God's gift of being right with him is revealed. If you're listening to someone and they're not telling you you are right with God because it's a gift, turn them off. Run. Righteousness is not what you do. It is a free gift that God has given to everyone who says, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Everyone who bows the knee to Jesus, God has given you a free gift, and that free gift is being right with him. Now, let me say this. In fact, look at this in Matthew chapter 6. Look at this. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And I am so convinced that what Paul said is true. Literally, and I'm not trying to say it to sound, you know. Keep in mind, he literally just said, the power of God, all right, is wrapped up in the grace of God. And in God's grace, his righteousness is revealed. That means if you pursue righteousness, you will get God's power. You want to see God's power manifest for you? Pursue his righteousness. You don't need to do more. You just need to learn more. You just need to believe more. Again, it's not doing more. It's believing more. The righteousness of God is revealed. So we have the power of God working for us. If you want God's power to work for you, intentionally put yourself in a place where God's, where the God's gift of righteousness is being revealed. Now look at this in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus in context is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to say this. Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. For after all those things, the Gentiles, people in the world, they're chasing after. But your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things. Now, if you look in context, he's literally saying the world wants to know what they're going to eat tomorrow. The world worries about things like that. They try to put these things together. They stress out about these things. But if you look deeper in, you know, look deeper at what Jesus is saying, he's literally saying people in the world are pursuing health. They're pursuing long life. They're pursuing uh, material things. They're pursuing prosperity. They're pursuing wealth. They're pursuing the good life. I mean, Jesus is going on to say people in the world are pursuing, they're pursuing the good life. But he says this, don't be like people in the world. Don't pursue those things. Instead, pursue one thing. Your heavenly father knows you have need of all those things. But watch this. But seek first, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Now, again, you want God's power? Pursue the kingdom. Pursue his righteousness. Now, if you have said, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, you already have the kingdom. So the only thing left now is to pursue his righteousness. You see, the, the, the job every day is not to find more things to do. I'm telling you, and, and I have to say this a thousand times because one day I believe that it's going to help somebody. All right. I'm telling you, your job today is not to say, let me listen to another preacher. Tell me something to do. Let me find more things in the Bible to do. Our job every day is to wake up and say, Jesus, I am your righteousness on this earth. I am righteous with your righteousness, your gift of righteousness. In fact, I remember I was reading a book by a guy named Gene Bailey, who's actually on some of my bookshelf right now. Uh, he wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he grew up in the Middle East, so he has a very Middle Eastern perspective on the Bible. Uh, and it's tremendous. He, he really opens the culture of the Bible, the, the, the day and age Jesus lived in. Um, and one of the things he talks about is this phrase right here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And when he talks about righteousness, he said this. Keep in mind, righteousness is not really something that you, you can hold. It's not really something tangible. So when Jesus talks about righteousness, keep in mind, righteousness was a judicial term. It's something that you would hear in a courtroom. So when you're in a courtroom, the judge would say, I declare that this person is righteous, meaning this person has no guilt. I don't, I don't condemn this person. This person is guilt-free. They are righteous. Now, if the person was guilty and the judge said this person is righteous, that person would love the judge. He would be grateful to the judge and he would turn around and probably live his life trying to honor what that judge did for him, knowing that he didn't deserve to be told he was righteous. And right here, Jesus is saying the same thing. You are not perfect, 
but seek first the kingdom of God, which was him, we have him, and his righteousness. Meaning, every day, seek first the declaration that God declares over you that you are righteous. You know, one of the things I tell the church a lot is this. I say it all the time. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Say it all the time. You know, I say it at work all the time. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. On the way to work, I tell myself, Matthew, don't forget, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. God's favor is working for you because you are the righteousness of God in Christ. God uh, is restoring this because you are the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, when I'm not sure how to discipline my son and I'm going, God, I need help because he's doing the same thing over and over. How do I, how do you know? And I remind myself, wait, but you are the righteousness of God in Christ. So, you know, we say that a lot. But keep in mind, it's not the declaration that I make over myself. It's me hearing the declaration of God over my life. It's me hearing God declare, Matthew Edwards, you are righteous. The same has to be true for every one of us. We have to be consciously hearing God declare over us, you are righteous. You're righteous. Well, but God, I did, I just, you know what I just did, Lord? Yes, but you know what? As judge, somebody stood in your place. My son stood in your place so that I can look at you right now. Even though I know what you just did, I can look at you right now and declare you are righteous because my son already paid for that sin. He already paid for it. Because he paid for it, I can look at you and say, you are righteous. Now, knowing that, what happens? If we pursue his righteousness every day, Jesus said, seek first, make it first. Make that the first thing you do. When you wake up in the morning, say it to yourself. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Before you go to that meeting, tell yourself, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. By saying seek first, what he's saying is make it the top priority. Before everything else in life, make this number one. Remind yourself to hear God declare over you, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. And what does he say? Seek first that and everything else will be added to you. So the life of a Christian is not trying to find a way to get more, to be more, to do more. The life of a believer is resting more in that statement alone. Because I am righteous, I don't have to struggle. Because I'm righteous, I don't have to fight through all this. Now, I'm not preaching this to you as if I'm arrived. I have not arrived. We're in this together. But let me say this. The more we talk about it, the more it's easier to rest knowing I really am the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, knowing that, look at this. David looked ahead at all of us in Romans chapter four. David looked ahead and David said, oh my God, one day someone's going to say I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. And David, he was like, man, how blessed are those people that can say that knowing that somebody stood in their place for them. In fact, look at this. Romans chapter four, verse one. I'm going to read down to verse eight, but I want you to look at this. Romans chapter four, verse one, Paul says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father has found according to the flesh for if Abraham was made righteous by works, by what he did, he had something to boast about before men, but not before God for what does scripture say, but what does the scripture say? It doesn't say that Abraham did something that Abraham did a lot of good things. So God made him righteous. No, no, no. It says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now that word accounted, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know but it doesn't mean it was uh, it was just spoken to him haphazardly. In fact, the word accounted literally is like a financial term, meaning it was credited to his account. Now, if I were to put $1,000 into your bank account tomorrow, you know, the stimulus checks just went out a couple weeks ago. There's talk about having another one. We'll see. But here or there, neither here nor there. Once the stimulus check hits your account, it's been credited to your account. Now, if you never actually go to the bank, take the money out the bank and never hold it in your hands, it's irrelevant because it's in your account. It's been credited to you. And what's happening is a lot of believers like Abraham, you accepted Christ. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. But because you're not actually seeing it, holding it in your hands, you have a hard time believing the truth that the thousand dollars is there, that his declaration of being righteous is there. But I'm telling you, if you were to open your bank account online, you would see it's been credited to your account. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm telling you, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. Now watch this. Abraham, it's not what he did, but it's what he believed. Verse four. Now to the one who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. So what did Abraham find? He found 
that if God made him righteous because of something he did, then it wasn't a gift. It wasn't grace. It was what he deserved. But he realized it wasn't because of what he did. It's because of what he believed. And because he believed the truth, God gave him righteousness as a gift, as a grace. So you see, grace imputes righteousness. Grace credits righteousness. The law demands righteous deeds, but grace credits righteousness. Let me say it this way. Under the law, the law demands you do righteous things. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not uh, commit adultery. Thou shall not X, Y, and Z. I don't remember all of them. I made it a point not to study those. I, God literally, all right, when it comes to the law, the law demands righteous deeds, but it can never make you righteous. All right? Let me say this. Under the law, there is no law that says, thou shalt give to your neighbor. It's not there. Now, it does say, treat your neighbor like you would treat yourself. But let me say this. That law does not say, give to your neighbor. It doesn't. But do you know that under grace, grace will cause you to love? In fact, John said it like this. Under grace, John said this. We love because he first loved us. The law never tells you to love your neighbor, but grace will cause you to love your neighbor from the inside of you to the outside of you. All right? The law, you can, you can obey the law, but break every law internally. But in grace, grace doesn't ask you to do anything externally. Grace changes your heart from the inside. And then all of a sudden on the outside, you find yourself doing things. You know, it's not hard to give when you want to give from your heart. But under the law, if the law demanded you to give, you would never want to do it from your heart. In fact, under the law, and I'll go one step further. Under the law, there actually is no law that that says, thou shalt give to your neighbor. There is no law. But under grace, grace will cause you to want to give to your neighbor from the inside out. Grace is greater than the law. Now, I don't know how we got on that. Here we are one more time. Now, to the one who works, it's called a wage, but it's not called grace. So what do we see? Grace imputes righteousness. The law demands righteous deeds, but grace imputes righteousness. Now, look at verse 5. Paul says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who makes righteous the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, what he believes is accounted for righteousness. There's that word account again. What he believes is being put into his account as righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness, and in the Greek it's a plural, the blessednesses all right, of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Grace imputes righteousness. And David says, let's look at how blessed those people are that God is imputing righteousness. Now watch this. There are some people who still struggle with sin. They say, well, you know, what about sin? What about sin? Are you ready to see how blessed you are? All right. Watch this. Verse seven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, most every believer would agree with that. Yes, when I ask God to forgive me, my sins are forgiven and all my unrighteous deeds are covered. Yeah, you know, I, I get that. I get that. I'm with you. So we're blessed for that reason. Okay, but let's take it one step further, right? Next verse, verse eight. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, I used the word impute earlier for this reason. Grace imputes righteousness. And you are blessed because when you sin, right here, what do we see? Verse 8, you are blessed because God will never impute sin to you. When you sin, God doesn't impute that sin into your account. When you make a mistake, God doesn't even credit that sin into your account. God has chosen and intentionally chosen to impute righteousness, perfection into your account. Now, let me say this. When does this verse bless us the most? When does this verse, you know, when does this verse matter? Does it matter when we go a whole week and we don't sin public? We don't sin externally. Does it matter when we go a whole week and we haven't done one thing wrong? No, you're not blessed. This man is not blessed in this verse because he doesn't sin. He is blessed because when he sins, all right, he's not blessed because he doesn't sin. He's blessed because when he sins, God is not imputing that sin to him. God is not crediting that sin to this person. I'm telling you, that's something that the church needs to hear over and over and over again. God is not imputing your sin to you. Now, I see the time. I'm trying to be as mindful of the time as I can, all right? But we're coming to a close. Right here, 
What are we seeing? One more time. God's power is unveiled when grace is shared. Grace imputes righteousness. Grace imputes righteousness. If you want God's power to work for you, what you need to hear in your head, what you need to hear in your heart, what you need to be hearing Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday is this. God is not imputing your sin to you. God has declared because of Jesus, you are righteous now and forevermore. I'm telling you, this is the high priest carrying us on his strength. This is our high priest carrying us. He's saying, it's not how bad you are. It's how strong I am. It's not all the things you did wrong today. It's all the things I did right 2000 years ago at the cross for you. It's not your obedience. It's my strength that is carrying you and producing all the favor you need right now in this moment. I love it. Mm, I love it. Now, Let's bring this to a close. Look at this in Isaiah 53. And don't forget one more time. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Look at this in Isaiah 53. Now I'm going to share this and then I'm going to close with Genesis, all right? And Genesis is that one tidbit that I was telling you. Uh, well, I was telling my wife earlier, this is brand new for me and I'm excited to share it. So I can't wait. Isaiah 53, look at this in verse 1. Isaiah says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Now the word arm right here has a double implication. On one hand, to whom has the arm, talking about a weapon, like an arms dealer, right? Uh, a gun or a weapon or a sword. All right. To whom has the weapon of God been revealed? So on one hand, that's true. But the other meaning is the actual physical arm. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, right? Now watch this. Again, his power is righteousness. His righteousness is his power. The gospel is the power of God because God's righteousness, the gift of his righteousness is being revealed. So watch this. He says, for who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, I want to read it in context so you understand. Verse two, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He is, he has, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's talking about Jesus, right? Verse three, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, the reason why I read that is because I want you to understand something. When you're talking about, uh, you're talking about his power, you're talking about the power of God. Notice how he depicts his power. He could have said, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Look how I defeated the Philistines. Look how I defeated the Midianites. Look how I defeated the Perizzites and the Canaanites and, and the giants. Uh, uh, how I defeated Goliath. How I rescued Jonah. I mean, he could have said any of those things. He could have used any of the examples of power and strength when he said, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He could have, he could have used any of those examples, but he didn't. When he talks, when he's talking about his power and his strength, he immediately starts talking about how his son took the iniquity of all of us, took the sin of all, all of us, took the sin of the whole world onto himself. And there, God judged him in our place. God doesn't interpret power or his strength by all the things he's done. He interprets his power and his strength by how he saved you. Man. I'm telling you, I was, um, give me one second. Just this past week, I was listening to the, uh, to the podcast. I'm bringing this to a close. This past week, I was listening to the podcast and, uh, I heard the preacher say something that I hadn't heard him say in a long time. And, uh, he was talking about, he said, you know, God wants to save you more than you want to be saved. And, you know, God wants to, uh, I mean, telling you, he never, he never wants to miss an opportunity to save you. Stop thinking that God is getting tired of saving you. And, and it just, it hit me all over again. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, the, one day I went a whole day, I didn't pray. One day I went a whole day, I didn't read my Bible. One day I went a whole day and I just, you know, it just, it didn't cross my mind. And I was feeling really condemned. And I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, you know, I haven't read, I haven't prayed. I, just, I haven't cracked my Bible. You know, I was feeling really, if I'm honest, I was feeling condemned. And then all of a sudden I remember what I was going to be sharing tonight. And I, I heard that on the podcast. Excuse me. And straight away, I heard the Lord say this, son, that guilt is not from me. That guilt is not from me. 
I laid on Jesus the iniquity of all you've done. Not just most of what you've done, but I laid on him the iniquity of all that you've done. I'm not imputing your sin to you. I'm not. I've imputed my righteousness to you. You are righteous whether you do it or whether you don't. And what it did was it made me encouraged to go pick up my Bible and read. It didn't make me say, oh, good, I don't got to read. Let me go play video games. You know, it encouraged me to go pick my Bible up and go read it now because God isn't holding it against me. And I'm telling you, I could go on and on down that train of thought, but I just, I wanted to point this out. Again, God interprets his strength by saving you. He interprets his strength by how he gets to save you. Now, knowing that, let me close with this. I was uh, researching the word righteousness. You can turn to Genesis 6. We're going to close. We're going to close with this last verse. I was uh, researching the word righteousness, going through, looking at a few things. And it dawned on me something that I, I love to do a lot. And this time it just took me a while to get here. Uh, but I love to look at the first time words are used in the Bible. There's a way to study the Bible called the law of first mention. Now, I want to take my time with this so that you get this, because this was really fun for me. I, I love this part. Um, the law of first mention. Now, the law of first mention says the first time a word is mentioned in the Bible, you can get a more clear understanding of how God interprets it all right, from a biblical standpoint uh, by the way it's used the very first time. So uh, let's say, for example, when it comes to a sword, we all know that a sword is a weapon you use to kill someone or to defend yourself. But how does God view the sword from a type or shadow standpoint or perspective? The first time the word sword is mentioned is when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. And God said, he kicked them out the garden. And God said, he put an angel there with a flaming sword that turned every which way to keep them from getting to the tree of life. So in the Bible, the sword from God's perspective was to keep his people away from getting to the tree of life so they could live forever. Right? The Old Testament ends by saying the sword will be sheathed into the shepherd. And when it is, the sheep will be scattered. Jesus took the sword for all of us. You see, the first time sword is mentioned, we see God's understanding is, is to keep people from getting to life. But all of a sudden, when Jesus comes, prophetically in the Old Testament, when Jesus comes, we see that when he comes, he will take the sword into himself for all of the sheep. And the sheep now can run straight into the presence of God and take from the tree of life. I'm telling you. So the law first mentioned is one of those fun things I love to do when I'm studying because I get a more clear understanding of how God views certain things. So when it came to the word righteousness, I looked it up and it actually appears for the first time in the Bible, in Genesis chapter six. And I'm going to close with this, right? Now in Genesis chapter six, it appears in Genesis chapter six, verse eight. Okay. But it appears in context of something else in the story of Noah who built the ark. Now watch this in Genesis six. Let's pick up at verse five. So we get the context, all right? Genesis chapter six, verse five, it says, uh, sorry, one second. It said, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intent of the, I'm sorry, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. Verse seven, I'm sorry, verse eight. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now notice real quick. God looks at all his creation. He realizes everything is going down. He realizes he's made a mistake. Everything is failing. There's a more deeper reason for that. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But everything is going bad. And God says the only way to save mankind is to destroy everything that's evil and save Noah and his family. All right. Uh, so what he does is this. He says, okay, is there anyone? And he finds Noah. But in verse 8, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, when Noah finds grace, don't forget, what do we read in Romans? Romans chapter 4, he said this. Or he didn't say it this way, but we're saying it this way. If what you get is because of what you've done, then that's considered a wage. But if it's a gift, then it's by grace. Grace imputes righteousness. One more time. Grace imputes righteousness. So right here in verse 8, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The very next verse says this. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just or righteous man. Perfect in his generations. I love it. I love it. You see, righteousness by faith, and keep in mind, this is before the law. So it couldn't have been by what he did. It had to be by what he believed. You see, the beauty of righteousness by faith is this. When you are right with God by faith, by grace, all right, grace imputing righteousness, what it means is this. You are sinning. You're making mistakes. But in all your mistakes, God is not imputing your righteousness to you. I love it. Man, I love it. So right here, one more time. 
8, it says Noah is righteous, but the verse right before it tells us what? He found grace. Because he found grace in God's eyes, righteousness was imputed to him. Let me say this. Because you have found favor in God's eyes, righteousness has been imputed to you. All you have to do is say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. In fact, I want to encourage you. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. We'll send an email out about this too. But I want to encourage you. Go to the podcast and listen to a sermon that we did last year called Seeing Jesus. Uh, it was a series. It's part one of the series. It's called Seeing Jesus. And in parentheses, it says righteously saved. In fact, I was listening to that one before I got on here. And I, I didn't pick it on purpose. I was just going through and I landed on that one. Uh, but it's all about righteousness. I'm telling you, man, it was, it was just awesome. It blessed me. It really blessed me. So I want to encourage you to go and listen to that one. But anyways, grace imputes righteousness. Now, when I saw this, when I saw this, I was actually looking at it in the Hebrew. I have an interlinear uh, Bible that takes the Hebrew and it crosses it over to the English so you can read it exactly how it's worded, how it's phrased, and how it's structured. So anyways, I was looking at it, and when I saw righteousness, it's the word Zadok or Sadiq. Uh, and it wasn't anything new for me. But then I saw something I never saw before. I know that Noah's name means rest. So look at this one more time in verse verse 8. And we're about to close. Look at this in verse 8. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I've known for years that the word Noah, the name Noah, Noah in the Hebrew, Nuach, Nuach, actually means rest. Rest finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right? What do we see in Romans? It's not what you do. Abraham did not find, it's what he did that made him right. It's what he believed that made him righteous. So rest, not work, rest finds favor in God's eyes, unmerited favor in God's eyes. So I've known that for a couple of years. That's not anything new. But when I was looking at the name Noah, I noticed, I noticed something I never saw before. Noah only had two Hebrew letters to make his name. So I looked at the two, two Hebrew letters and I went and I have, a, uh, I have this, this uh, table chart I have taped to my wall because <laughs> the best place I could find to put it. And it literally breaks down every Hebrew letter with the picture that corresponds to it, with the meaning that corresponds to it, right? So I, I went immediately and I looked. Now, the two Hebrew letters, and you can look this up for yourself, to spell out Noah's name. Now, his name means rest. But the two Hebrew letters that are used for Noah, the first one on the, on the uh, Hebrew reads right to left. So the first one on the right is the letter Nuach. The first letter Nuach, I'm sorry, is Nun. <laughs> We're making the name Nuach. The first letter is Nun. The second letter is Hey, now I've known for years, hey is the letter for grace. It's the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Five is the number for grace. In fact, uh, the, the interpreters even today say, hey is the picture of breath or the wind, all right? But we know it to be grace, okay? Noon, the letter in or noon, is actually the picture of a seed. But the meaning is not like a seed that you put in the ground. It's actually the seed in terms of an air or a sun, Someone who's going to inherit something. Now, keep in mind, all of us are sons of God. We are inheriting. But what are we inheriting? We're not inheriting gold, silver, land, livestock. We're not inheriting the things that Isaac inherited, the physical things. We are inheriting the thing that produces the physical things. We are inheriting what? Noon, the second letter is, hey, we are inheriting grace. The air and grace. Now, watch this. When you put the two together... You have the son of grace. Literally, the son in grace makes the name Nuwak. When you see Nuwak, Nuwak actually means rest. Now, I hope I didn't lose any of you. Go back and watch that, rewind it, listen to it on the podcast. But again, one more time, just for the sake of argument, because I love it. Noon is a son or an heir, someone who's inheriting. And the second letter, hey, is actually the letter for grace. When you put the two together, you have the son of grace or the heir, the inheritor of grace. And the two together actually mean rest. Noah. Nuach means rest. And don't forget, rest finds favor in God's eyes. When I saw that, straight away, I heard this. Let me take it one step further and I'll close, okay? One step further and I'm done, I promise. Look at this. One chapter before this. In fact, I have it on my tablet. One chapter before this. Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. Noah's father, his name was Lamech, all right? Lamech. And Lamech named him named his son uh, Noah. Verse 29, Genesis 5, verse 29. It says, And he, Lamech, called his name Noah, saying, This one, talking about Noah, will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now, when I saw that, keep in mind, God cursed the ground because of Adam. 
But Lamech looked at the ground and said, it's cursed. But this son that comes from Lamech, he says, call him Noah. Why Noah? Because Noah means rest. Noah means rest. But when you break his name down, it means the heir of grace, the one who is inheriting grace. He will have rest. And watch this. Noah will comfort us concerning the work and the toil of our hands because of the ground that the Lord has cursed. When I saw that, I'm telling you, it's like I'd never seen it before. My eyes just blown. My, my mind was blown. My eyes were just, you know, because what I realized was in that moment, what he's saying is this. Noah, the one who's inheriting grace, he will give everyone comfort concerning the things that are cursed. Do you know that when Noah was on the ark, when the ark rested, after the judgment had passed, the flood had passed, when the ark rested, it rested on a mountain named Ararat. And the Mount Ararat means curse is reversed. Noah was the first person to step foot on the new earth, in the new world. And when he stepped foot on the new earth, his first step was on a place called the curse is reversed. Meaning, all of us in Christ, everywhere you step, you are the heir of God's grace. Everywhere you step, the curse is reversed. But notice, he found grace in God's eyes. And because it started with grace, where he found grace in God's eyes, it ended with the curse being reversed. I'm telling you, beloved, and I mean this with all my heart, be intentional about hearing God's grace and God's grace alone. Because when you're hearing God's grace, His righteousness is being imputed to you. You should be hearing preachers and teachers telling you, it's not how bad you are. It's not what you need to do to get it better. It's not the things you need to do to get it right. It's what Jesus did to make you right. It's what Jesus did to make you perfect. It's what Jesus did for you. Stop saying, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. No, it's what Jesus did to save you. Focus on what he did for you. And I'm telling you, the more you do that, you're going to start seeing every curse reversed in your life. Every curse being reversed in your life. Because everything that you need, everything you need, is not by might, nor by power, nor by uh, your strength, says the Lord, but it's by His Holy Spirit. It's His strength. It's Him putting you on His shoulders. It's Him carrying you through that job. It's Him carrying you through that problem. It's Him carrying you through that argument. It's Him carrying you to the restoration that you were asking for. It's Him carrying you into that favor that you needed. It's Him carrying you. It's not what you've done but it's what Jesus is doing for you. It's his power, it's his strength, it's his righteousness. Your job is to rest. Your job is to relax. And your job is to be intentional. Not just your, my job as well. Our job is to be intentional about hearing people tell us, it's not what we did, but it's what Jesus did for us. And that said, I love you. I feel like I talked really fast, but I believe that the Lord wants to do a lot of things for all of us, all of us. And I know that this virus, this pandemic is coming to an end, but as it comes to an end, I'm telling you, don't wait for this to be over. Believe that God is still opening doors right now. Believe that God is still doing crazy things for you right now because his righteousness opens doors that no man could open and it shuts doors that no man can shut. His righteousness does things that you couldn't even imagine or dream. His righteousness doesn't just protect you. It does so much more for all of us. The blessings of the righteous man are pursuing you, even right now as you're listening to this. Because it's not what you do, it's what you believe. So that said, beloved, if you would just hold your hands out in front of you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for everyone that's been a part of this uh, Facebook Live and that's hearing this this on the podcast. And Lord, for everyone that's receiving right now, I thank you, Lord, uh, whatever mountain might be in their way, I thank you that, again, we are your righteousness on this earth. And Father, as that truth has settled into everyone's minds and into their hearts tonight, I ask right now that whatever door seems like it's being locked, I thank you that you have the key of David and you are opening those doors. Father, whatever mountains seem to be in front of their way, I thank you, Lord, the more we rest in your righteousness tonight as we have uh, believed that we are right with you by faith. I thank you, Lord, that that mountain is being removed. Lord, even what we saw last week, that the mountains are moved, the more we are established in your righteousness. Father, whatever whatever giant might be yelling at anyone, may the truth, the truth that we are loved by you, so we can rest knowing that you are our heavenly David, running into the battlefield to fight the giant for us. Father, may that truth settle into everyone's hearts, and may they, and not just them, but myself included, may we be more firmly rooted and established in the truth of your gift of being right with you by faith. And Father, as that happens, I thank you that your protection is manifesting 
uh, in greater measure for everyone. As this pandemic um, takes a different change of course, Father, may your divine protection manifest for everyone watching this video. So Heavenly Father, we love you, but more importantly, you love us. And tonight we focus on your love for us. And we thank you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I love you again. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sticking it out. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.